words have incredible ability to, to influence people and to, to generate a reaction, a response, even, even to shape the very way that people think. Just consider uh, the influence of, of a historic playwright, playwright like Shakespeare, you know, someone who, who is responsible for inventing common words like, like critic or swagger, lackluster or lonely. I mean, it, it boggles the mind to, to be responsible uh, for coining, inventing words like that. Think, think of occasions in history when, when someone made a powerful speech or a powerful turn of phrase that inspired an entire nation or defined an entire movement. We could think of Patrick Henry with, as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Or Winston Churchill, victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terrors, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. Or Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, without a doubt, no one has ever shaped the world through his words the way that Jesus Christ did. And yet, even as Christians uh, sitting here in, in the church this Sunday morning, sometimes we can become so familiar with, with Jesus' teaching and the countless ways that it's, it's really shaped and formed our world for the past 2,000 years, we don't fully realize or appreciate just how profound, how powerful it is. So you see, when Jesus began his ministry, nearly everything about him defied the expectations of his own people, Israel, the very people who were awaiting this promised Messiah. When, when Jesus preached about the kingdom of God, he was facing a huge obstacle because his own disciples and the crowds, they all had expectations of a Messiah who would bring about political change and would completely overthrow the world order, the Roman Empire. So how could Jesus, as he arrived on the scene, how could he explain that his mission was to be rejected and crucified? How could he explain and get across that his kingdom was not going to be what they had anticipated? How could he turn upside down all of their long-held assumptions? Well, Jesus, the most influential teacher, the most effective communicator who ever walked this earth, he told the people stories about farming and baking. Uh, he taught them about God's kingdom using tiny seeds and, and troublesome weeds. He, he dismantled these political expectations because it's really hard to take illustrations of gardening and, and bread dough, and, and then spark a political revolution with that. Uh, but this morning, friends, it's worth us taking some time to consider his teaching, to seek to understand what Jesus taught about God's kingdom. Because in explaining the kingdom, Jesus is explaining God's plan of salvation. He's explaining the fulfillment of all of God's promises from the Old Testament as we even heard read earlier this morning, promises about a, about a new covenant, about a new creation, a new exodus. So we're talking about the end goal of not only uh, the most uh, 
not only all of human history, but the end goal of all creation. So nothing could be more important. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you want to grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you. We're going to be reading a passage from Matthew chapter 13. You can find it on page 818 in the pew Bible. But Matthew 13, verses 24 through 43. So listen to God's word from the Gospel of Matthew. He, speaking of Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father." He who has ears, let him hear. I believe that these, these parables of Jesus can offer us really some much-needed encouragement and, and strength today. And we're going to dig into each of the parables in turn. But if we wanted to just try to summarize what the, the main point of this, this passage in Matthew 13, um, it would be this. It would be, don't lose heart in the midst of a hostile world, for Jesus uses the small and unimpressive to do great kingdom work, and he will return to make all things right. Let me say that again. Don't lose heart in the midst of a hostile world, for Jesus uses the small and unimpressive to do great kingdom work, and he will return to make all things right. And so this morning is we're just going to be thinking, really, and, and, and studying, meditating on 
the kingdom of God. We're really going to be just stepping through three points all focused on the kingdom. And it's going to be this, and we'll, we'll say these again as we go, but first the kingdom's enemy, and then the kingdom's success, and then finally the kingdom revealed. So the kingdom's enemy, the kingdom's success, and then the kingdom revealed. So first of all, the kingdom's enemy we see there in verses 24 through 30, this parable of the weeds. So in that first parable, the kingdom of heaven, which is synonymous um, with the kingdom of God, as it's usually referred to in, in some of the other Gospels. The kingdom is compared to a master who sows good seed in his field, but an enemy under the cover of night also sneaks into the field and sows weeds. So we have weeds and wheat together in the field. And the master orders that in order to protect the wheat, the weeds will be allowed to remain until harvest, and then they will be sorted out. The weeds for the fire and the wheat for the master's barn. So Jesus is revealing something really significant about the nature of God's kingdom. The theologian and scholar Tom Schreiner uh, writes about this parable. He says, The kingdom of God has come in transforming power, but astonishingly, the enemies of the kingdom persist and are not removed from the scene. The world is filled with ambiguity and tension between those transformed by the kingdom and those hating the kingdom. So really, this would have been a shocking idea for the Jews of Jesus' day, including his own disciples. They expected a kingdom that would arrive like a hurricane, decimating God's enemies with overwhelming force, bringing about the righteous reign of the Son of David, the Messiah. And the mystery that Jesus revealed through these parables was that a, really, a very different scenario was going to play out. There will be good seed, which later Jesus explains this good seed represents people. Uh, not, the good seed does not represent the word here, as in, uh, you know, Jesus' parable of the sower, but the good seed represents people. But there's also an enemy who is at work sowing bad seed. That's also people. The weeds are mingled with the wheat, and that is the situation going forward. Not a final day of reckoning, not the removal of all the wicked. An example of this would also be in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus uh, comes and reads the Isaiah scroll. He reads and proclaims the Lord's favor from the prophet Isaiah. He does not proclaim the day of vengeance. See, the Jewish disciples were hoping and expecting vengeance to come when the Messiah appeared. And if we're honest, it's, it's easy for us to have the same mindset sometimes. Why must we live in this world of, of tension and conflict, coexisting with, with such terrible evil? We long for God to sweep away wickedness and sin. We want to, to stop being surrounded by these things. And of course, even to, to have them still living in, in, in certain ways in our own hearts. And it burdens our souls to live in a world where there are mass shootings, where there's war, there's sexual abuse, drug abuse, abortion, human trafficking, and the list goes on and on. But Jesus is explaining something very important to his disciples and important for us to grasp. Yes, God's kingdom arrives, but the kingdom does not destroy all opposition. The sons of the kingdom live alongside the sons of the evil one. 
But make no mistake, the kingdom of God has broken into this dark world. The kingdom of God has arrived because Christ has arrived. That's what we celebrate at this time of year, at Christmas. Christ came as a helpless baby born in a, in a, in a stable. He performed his earthly ministry. Uh, he, he healed. He cast out demons. He preached the word. And then he was crucified and he rose from the dead. So the kingdom has already been inaugurated. We know that it's here because there are people here today in this room who belong to that kingdom, the good seed. Jesus' disciples, who even now already are new creations. But at the same time, we still await the not yet. Christ's return, his second coming, when every promise will be fully and finally fulfilled, finally realized. But in the meantime, we wrestle with this problem of so much evil in the world. Why do so many oppose Jesus Christ and and reject the gospel? And this is a huge question that that causes many to struggle. And you even see it in, in the parable, in this question that servants ask the master of the field, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Now certainly, one answer must be what, what the Apostle Peter explains in 2 Peter 3.9. When Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient and does not immediately bring final judgment. I mean, think about this. If, 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 if he had brought final judgment there in, in the, the first century A.D., none of us would be here. It would have been over for, uh, for the human race going forward, other than maybe a few of his disciples or something. But God is patient. He gives the human race so many second chances, so many opportunities to repent, so much time to repent. But Jesus also gives an answer right here in his parable, and it's really just so brief and so simple. He says, an enemy has done this. And we want to ask so many more questions. We want to understand the nature of evil and Satan and how these things relate to the sovereignty of God. But Jesus simply says, this was the work of an enemy. Wait now, and in the end, I will sort it all out. I'm not going to sort it out now because it would harm the good seed. It would harm the wheat. In the end, I'll sort it all out. Leave it to me. I'll deal with it. Trust me. And we notice, too, that the master of the field has the ability to send out his reapers and gather up the weeds now, but he says no. It's not the best course of action. Again, specifically, he says he's waiting until harvest time, not for the sake of the weeds, but for the sake of the wheat. It's for their good. It's for our good that he delays this final sorting process. He delays the removal of all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And so, again, this is another occasion for faith, for trusting that God indeed works all things together for good for his children, trusting that God is not to blame as the agent of evil. No, it is an enemy who did this. And God will 
make it right. He will judge evil and reward the righteous, but he's reserving that for a future day. And so, don't lose heart in the midst of a hostile world. We can trust our Savior, even when we don't get an answer to every question. And one reason that we should not lose heart is that God is at work changing the world, sowing good seeds, saving people, and doing it through weak and unimpressive means. And so that leads us into the second point. We talked about uh, the kingdom's talked about the kingdom's enemy, and now we're going to look at the kingdom's success uh, here in verses 31 through 33. The kingdom's success. Uh, Let's read again, beginning in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them, Another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now with these two very short parables, Jesus continues shattering the expectations of his hearers. The kingdom of heaven does not begin with an impressive band of soldiers or political operatives who are going to conquer Rome and, and dominate the world. No, it begins like a mustard seed the smallest of garden seeds. As Jesus already taught in the parable of the weeds, there would continue to be opposition to God's kingdom. There would be many who reject the message and the messengers. And it's not for God's people to to uproot the wicked or to punish rebels. Judgment belongs to God. He has reserved it for a future day. And in the meantime, the kingdom is like a tiny seed that grows into a tree. (laughs) And then even then, it's not portrayed like some, some massive oak tree that, that just dominates the whole earth. You know, we could think of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel 4. It, it doesn't sound like that, certainly not right away. Jesus describes it as, as a tree that's larger than all the garden plants. It can provide shade and birds can nest in it, but it, it doesn't sound really like this tree that just fills the entire skyline. Because God's way is to use small things to accomplish his great purposes. Small things like a helpless newborn child born in a stable in Bethlehem, the Savior of the world. He uses small and weak things like local churches and like preaching and like like me and like you to do just quiet unremarkable, overlooked work of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and making disciples. And so be encouraged, South Canyon Baptist Church. Even though we may feel weak and weary, even though we face seasons of sickness or financial instability or anxiety, Jesus says to us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God has given us the treasure of the gospel to carry in jars of clay in order to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. And so this gospel we preach, it's not a promise of good health 
and riches. It's not an offer of political power and influence. There's not a promise that all our problems are going to disappear. On the contrary, Jesus warns his disciples there will still be problems. In fact, there will be more problems because you are associated with me. But, but this is what we are promised, that we will gain Christ. He gives us himself. We will be reconciled to the Father. We will be forgiven and accepted and brought near. And so we say, just like his disciple Peter in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so even though it begins like a tiny seed, the kingdom of God succeeds as it spreads throughout the nations with the message of Christ. The prophets spoke of this, Isaiah 27, 6. It says, In the days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. And Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 17, 23, he spoke of a tree so great, under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And while perhaps the ultimate fulfillment of, of these passages, this great tree, may be in the new heavens and the new earth. I think there's an initial fulfillment as the gospel goes to the Gentiles, spreads to every nation. As, as global workers like those that this church supports and thousands of other faithful disciples are carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as the kingdom spreads, as it grows, it's not like any other kingdom. It's not seeking to build an empire. It's not centered in palaces or high courts. It doesn't wrestle against flesh and blood. It has no political boundaries, and yet it overtakes all other contenders. You know, the Roman Empire came to an end. Other empires and world powers have come and gone. The kingdom of God perseveres. You know, we don't know if this nation where we live will continue to have the same prosperity, will continue to, to have the same global influence, will continue to to enjoy here the, the freedom and the religious liberty that we know today. We can pray for mercy. and We can seek to promote righteousness where God has planted us. But things could get much worse. But you see, world powers come and go. The kingdom of God is still on the move. The message of the gospel still goes forth, and God still transforms lives. As the hymn says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And now Jesus also compares the kingdom to, to leaven that was put in a large quantity of flour and then spreads until it permeates and leavens all the dough. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible translates this as 50 pounds of flour, the amount of flour. That's a big bowl of dough. You know, enough to make bread for feeding, you know, over a hundred people. So this parable really emphasizes the inner transformative nature of the kingdom. And again, it, it highlights the quiet and small beginnings of God's work in the world. The remarkable thing about the kingdom of God is not the vast number of people who enter it. You know, Jesus says, in Matthew 7, 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And then in Matthew 22, 14, he says, many are called, but few are chosen. See, it's not about impressive statistics. 
It's not that, that Christians outnumber everyone else. It's not the quantitative measure, but it's the qualitative change, that inner transforming work of God. God gives believers new hearts. He gives His Holy Spirit. He makes us new creations. And so Jesus calls His disciples, as Mark was referring to in His prayer, the light of the world. And He commands us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't take a moment and examine ourselves. Jesus is teaching about the nature of his kingdom as, as we look at these, these pictures that he has painted. Do we see ourselves reflected in them as we consider this field of wheat and weeds mingled together? Do we sense the profound distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan? Do we, do we grieve over the darkness, the emptiness, the selfishness and idolatry that characterizes this lost world? Or, or have we become so at ease with all these things because we've adopted the world's values and its mindset so much that we no longer really feel much distinction? Yes, we are in the world, and that's by God's design. He's not removed us from the world. As he told his disciples, he leaves us here to be salt and light. However, we are not of this world. God's kingdom produces in people a deep permeating transformation like leaven permeating bread and causing it to rise. God intends us, as he says in Philippians 2.15, he intends us to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. So may we be a people who are distinct and set apart, who long to see the gospel taken to people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language, who pray, let your kingdom come, and who pray for, for those that we've partnered with for local and for global missions, and who serve to support those. A people who, who are scheming and strategizing how we can show hospitality and welcome strangers and aliens showing Christ's love and sharing the message of the gospel. Because Jesus uses the small and unimpressive to do his great kingdom work. And he gives us hearts that love his kingdom and seek his kingdom first. And so finally, in this, this, this third section of the passage, in verses 34 through 43, we learn about the kingdom's revelation. The kingdom's revelation. And really, there are two stages to this revelation of the kingdom. First, the first stage comes with Jesus' first coming. What we celebrate here at Christmas his earthly ministry, his life, his death and resurrection. The second stage is with Jesus' second coming when he returns to judge the earth and establish his eternal reign. We've really been thinking and, and we've been talking about both of those stages as we celebrate Advent. So first, Jesus comes, and specifically what we see uh, here in, in verse 34 is 
that Jesus comes fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He comes revealing mysteries of the kingdom that Israel did not previously understand. So a couple times in, in verse 24 and in verse 31, there's language used to speak of Jesus. He says, he put another parable before them in verse 24. And then in verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, these, these, these verses echo the language that's used to speak of Moses in the Old Testament. So in Exodus 19.7, it says, Moses set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Jesus here is the greater Moses, teaching God's people with authority and speaking to them the very words of God. And so then Matthew quotes Psalm 78, two, 78 verse 2 to demonstrate that Jesus is fulfilling um, what Asaph, the psalmist, wrote. So again, reading in, in verse 34 and 35, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, in Psalm 78, the psalmist, Asaph, he recounts all these events from throughout Israel's history, but he he brings them together, he compiles them, and he compares them in a way that provides new insight. He highlights how over and over again God performs mighty acts of salvation, and over and over again Israel is stubborn and rebellious, and yet in spite of all of that, God raises up King David to shepherd and to guide them. And so then as, as this text, this passage is applied to Jesus, one commentator explains it like this, Asaph picks out significant points in the history of Israel and shows that the divine purpose has been worked out despite the rebelliousness of the people. Just as God's salvation was made clear in Asaph's interpretation of history, Matthew is saying so is God's salvation brought out in the parables of Jesus. See, Jesus is revealing things about God's salvation, about God's kingdom that were prophesied in the Old Testament, things that were hinted at in previous divine revelation, but at the same time, he shocks his audience with seemingly new teaching as he brings various pieces together in ways that previously had not been clearly seen or understood. Uh, D.A. Carson writes, Jesus' kingdom parables to the crowds declare new things, secrets, hidden things, yet they are secret and new chiefly because they depend on an approach to Scripture not unlike Asaph's, bringing together various pieces of revelation into new perspectives. And so just, for instance, we understand now, reading the New Testament, reading the New Testament authors, that the Messiah is the royal son of David, but he is also Isaiah's suffering servant from Isaiah 53. This was not foreseen or expected. And in the case of, of Jesus' kingdom parables, he says that God's kingdom arrives, but final judgment is delayed. Jesus brings salvation. He brings deliverance for his people, but he does not immediately bring them into that eternal kingdom. This was unexpected. And so we even have, remember, John the Baptist coming, uh, sending someone, questioning Jesus, asking, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And Jesus' response is that he is preaching good news. The kingdom, of right, the kingdom of God has arrived with a message of good news, not with, with judgment day. 
So in this sense, the kingdom has been revealed. It has come. The kingdom is broken into human history. It's been inaugurated. But although it's been revealed through the message of Jesus Christ, that final consummation of the kingdom, that complete transformation of the world has not yet taken place. And there are still a great number of people who don't see the kingdom and who don't embrace the message of the kingdom. And so the full revelation of that kingdom, that second stage that we talked about, that is yet to come, and that is when Christ returns. And on that day, every person will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every person will know that he rules the entire universe, and they were only living on borrowed time. One day God will pull back the curtain and prove undeniably that the kingdom of God is the ultimate reality of the universe and the goal of all history. And that's what Jesus describes there in verse 40 in our passage. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So if, if you are here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, I simply want to urge you as, as Jesus does here in his words, don't be lulled into a false sense of security. This world gives a powerful illusion that everything is fine. There's no meaningful difference between those who decide for themselves to follow Christ and those who, who don't. You know, and some are even going to try to argue that really those who follow Christ are the problem. They're the ones making the world worse. But in the end, it does matter whose side you're on, whose kingdom you belong to. There's no neutral middle ground. The true nature of reality is that every human being belongs either to the kingdom of God or to the kingdom of the devil. And Jesus warned his hearers that one day this reality would be revealed to all people instantaneously and irrevocably. The world will be turned upside down. The illusion will be shattered when Christ returns to separate the righteous from the wicked. There's no opportunity to change your allegiance. But today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because you see, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he became man, he walked this earth 2,000 years ago, not merely to teach about the kingdom, but to open the way into the kingdom for rebels like me and you. Jesus, the only sinless human being who ever lived, he gave his life on the cross. He died the death that we all deserve. He took our place so that everyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in him would be transferred from the realm of Satan into the kingdom of God. And Jesus did not remain dead, but after three days, he rose from the grave, proving that he had conquered sin and death. And he will return again in glory and reign over his people forever in this eternal kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. Eternal life 
in the kingdom of heaven is available to anyone who would turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus. So if you've never embraced the message of Jesus Christ, but you would be interested in learning more, you'd be interested in considering that, I would just encourage you to talk to me, talk to one of the elders here today who are on the back of your bulletin. We would love to start a conversation with you about what it would look like to begin following Jesus. And for the Christians here, let us lean in and cling to Jesus Christ with all of our hearts, with all of our strength, and trust him as our merciful and loving king. What makes this kingdom so, so glorious, so good, so true, so worthy of our, of our all? It's the king. It's the king who rules it. The king who laid down his life because of the great love with which he loved us. We can trust him. He's working through our weakness to bring about his magnificent and good and beautiful purposes. And he is coming back again. In this season of Advent, we celebrate Christ's first coming and we long for his second coming. As the song says, Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that you sent your Son not only to, uh, to explain, to reveal mysteries, uh, to, to tell us about your kingdom, uh, but to, to be the king who, who died in order to make a way for us to come into that kingdom and to know the king not merely as, as subjects, not merely as servants, but as friends, even as the bride of your Son, our Lord and our Savior and our King. Uh, we just thank you for the magnificent mercy uh, of the gospel. We pray that every person here would fully trust and fully embrace the message, fully embrace the person <coughs> of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.